Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Welcome to Einstein to Go Go, folks. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Dr. Shane, and you are going to get an hour of science out of us now. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R. Big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11 o'clock. We've got you for an hour now. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning, madam. How are you? I am very well. Very nice to be here. So you're rushing into the studio at Tinder. Yeah, I was very <laughs> nice to have made it here on time. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Just did it. Indeed. And we've also, we've stolen someone today. We've stolen someone from the radiotherapy team, mm-hmm. not the team that was just on, but from one of the other teams that is usually on in one of the other weeks. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of different weeks. But we have Gemma, otherwise known as, uh, I think, you, what are you, Dr. G-Spot on that show? I, I am. I'm actually afraid to be under my real name on <laughs> Einstein and Gogo. And I, I wanted to say, Dr. Shane, I usually associate your theme tune with the show finishing <laughs> and being relieved. And now I'm actually quite anxious to oh, yeah, hear your just theme tune. Yeah. Every now and then, if I'm in the car and it comes on, randomly like if there's a triple r ad or something and they play it i freak out because i feel like i should be pushing some buttons <laughs> it's very uh, after 30 years it, it does get you but welcome to uh einstein and gogo i'm dr very, Gemma sharp we I'm, should you know your full name so people can send the hate mail the right place <laughs> thank you thank you it surely can only be a reduction in the amount i normally receive dr shane it's an absolute pleasure <laughs> to be on einstein and gogo and continue our battle face to face that we've been having on twitter for years yeah and like look it was nice of you to let us know that you'd been preparing all day yesterday for this show i mean lauren and i well we did three or four minutes this oh, morning yeah, if that. If yeah. that. I, it's going to show in the outcomes my friend <laughs> no it really won't folks um, I'm sure it will. In. well folks uh, we have a big show prepared for you today we're going to do some news early on and then we have the queen herself professor felice jacker from deakin university coming on the show and uh, she's been sniffing around over at nasa so i'm very excited about what we're going to be talking about with her along with of course all her work down at the Mood Centre at Deakin University. So that'll be cool. And then if we have time, which we probably won't, we'll talk a little bit about Gemma's work as <laughs> what well. A, what a shame. Um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to chatting with Queen Felice. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. But we're going to start off with some news. Uh, Dr. Lauren? Well, I'm going to start with a little pop quiz for your Sunday morning. Uh-oh. So <laughs> how long do you think bees live for? Um, Ooh. I put flies of the day. So I'm going to put bees of the month. Ah. I'm going to say a week. Excellent. Well, so you guys are kind of both right, to be honest. So Shane was right from the 1970s. Gemma's more right from now. So unfortunately... Generational difference. Generational difference. Exactly. Exactly. I was born in the 1970s, so there you go. So you're right. You're right. Um, Yeah, so unfortunately... and. Farmers have been saying this for a long time. The lifespan of bees has been getting shorter and shorter. And we know that we're also losing numbers of bees. And this is obviously a huge issue for food production. But the numbers are quite scary. So the the average lifespan of a bee used to be 30 days back in the 70s. And it's now about 17, 16 to 17 days. So it's it's almost halved um, in that amount of time. And so immediately, if you're anything like me, you start thinking, right, pesticides, land clearing, all of these environmental stresses. And everyone did think that was what was happening. So we're just basically, we are are shortening their lives. Mm. However, a new study has just come out this week, um, published in Scientific Reports, and it's actually shown that this halving in lifespan is also being seen in the lab. So bees that are actually taken from the the wax cells where they're raised, so if they're taken before they actually emerge as adults, Mm. they're kept secure from all those environmental stresses, they're still only living half the normal lifespan. How, how do they factor out, though, the sort of genetic distribution of information from their forebears? And this is exactly it, Dr. Shane. You've got it on the head. So oh. what they're actually saying is they think that it's probably a genetic genetic issue. So right. it's probably so they're passing it on. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so... While that's very bad news, it's also in a way maybe slightly good news because if we can actually work out the genetic reason that they're living a shorter time, maybe we can actually try and address that. So Mm. it might actually be some way that we can increase that lifespan again because obviously we need those guys around Mm. and working as long as they can and more of them if we can get that happening too. So it's um, hopefully there might be a silver lining in this story. Yeah, it's it's one of those things though, isn't it? We we know that certain things are passed on genetically of humans and we accept that, Mm. but we don't think about this in 
insects where the population refreshes itself so much more rapidly. Exactly. You know, as you say, even even the old days when it was thirty days, yep. that means you're getting a completely new population every month, twelve yep. a year yep. or more. Yep. And that's a really quick way to pass on genetic errors and problems. That's it, exactly. So you wonder, what I would love to see from this group is whether that is progressing. Yes. Or whether it's reached that half length of the original sort of lifespan and it's halted. Or whether it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. It'd be interesting to know whether that's, you know, how much time we have. Mm, that's yeah. true. That's true. Mm. It sounds like the complete opposite of humans, that we are living so much longer and bees aren't. Yeah, that's it's so true. Yeah, I think the difference is that our interventions, some of them, are good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but maybe humans. we should be giving them to bees. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Type yeah. of bee health. Yeah, they need some good stuff. <laughs> Gemma, over yes. to you. News, what yes. have you got for us? I, I've been lick, uh, looking into breathing, mm. so something that we very much take for granted, I like to think. I was wondering, so I'll ask Dr Shane first and then I'll go to Dr Lauren. Have you ever taken a big breath before doing something really important or scary? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, like you, I think especially when I was starting to learn to public speaking mm. one of the things that I, I was taught early on was to not do that because that's something you tend to you know you take a big big breath but then you mm. you start to hyperventilate you actually you know you give yourself too much oxygen that can mm. be bad so there's a tendency to do that yes. i remember doing that when i was younger i try not to do that now I just hold my breath like not ages. breathing yeah okay. <laughs> that's it, that's it. and dr lauren how about yourself yeah no actually similar to dr shane so and i've um, learned this really fantastic technique called figure eight breathing so if anyone's interested google it but it's sort of this you know very mindfulness about breathing but exactly the same thing not just having one big gulp of breath but Mm. sort of pacing it out a little bit yeah 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 i do do it when whenever i've gone there i've only done this a couple of times when i've gone um skeet shooting because there's some really important breathing elements around Mm. that because you you have to like if you hold your breath when you're doing that it's not the best thing so you you have to kind of breathe through it and I remember getting really good breathing instructions from a guy who was teaching me how to shoot clay pigeons. Yeah, there you go. Bizarre. That's, oh, my gosh, Dr. Shane, did you read my news piece? Is <laughs> it about clay pigeons? <laughs> it, uh, tangentially, yes. Um, so I think anyone who's come to me for therapy, and hopefully they're not listening today, um, knows that I will cover this off in my You're very... not going to name them, mate. Is that, is that what happens on radiotherapy? That's, Do you that's name right. People? We name yeah. all our patients. Um, it's amazing we haven't been cancelled already. Um, But I I cover this off on in first sessions for the very reasons that you're talking about. When people become anxious, they'll tend to hyperventilate that very short or shallow breath. But um, a, a study by Alan et al. in Psychological Review this year, if listeners want to check it out, what they did was they synthesized a bunch of results from uh, rodents, monkeys, and human brain imaging, and they used it to propose a computational model that explains how our breathing influences our brain's expectations. Yeah. So it's not just lungs, it's actually impacting how we think. So what they found was that across tasks and across all animals, so rodents through to us, brain rhythms are closely tied to the rhythm of our breath. So we are more sensitive to the outside world when we are breathing in. Right. Whereas the that brain kind of makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas yeah. the brain tunes out more when we breathe out. Wow. Interesting. So you were you would have been taught to shoot when breathing out. out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what Olympic shooters are taught as well. Is that right? Exactly. I mean they were preparing me for the Olympics at the time. <laughs> they said I was really good at it. I- to anyone else, I'm sure. And you were there. You yeah, were yeah, yeah. there. I just realised you were there. They did not say it to me. That's no, for they sure. did not. No, they were, so you no, were shooting on breathing Just pass the gun in. back. Just pass just it. Hand it. Hand it. Step away, Lauren. Step away. <laughs> Your husband stepped away. <laughs> you know, the he targets are in the up. sky. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so your husband does not dress up as a clay pigeon? No, no. no or a rabbit. <laughs> So, so yes, this is, you know, this is core to brain function. Breathing is not just some random thing with our oh. lungs inflating. It is, it affects how we think. And it's no surprise that it, it has those impacts on mental health. And I think that this can be a really core region of research moving forward. Yeah. So things like yoga and meditation and, and Lauren mentioned mindfulness have already been harnessing this. But I think now we can start to really look at the neuroimaging research to back this up, how this could be used to help with uh, depression, anxiety, et cetera. 
And I'm glad that I've been doing this in my first session for all these years and I'll continue to do so and I'll provide yeah. more education on it now. It's interesting though. I think I might, whenever I come across someone I don't like, I'm going to breathe out. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> is that a good just, strategy? Is that yeah. why just you were breathing out? out when I walked in? Yeah. To the <laughs> <laughs> but eventually I had to take a breath. I know. <laughs> Why, you know, say if you if you are agitated mm. and you're hyperventilating, yes. is it sort of then the brain's obviously trying to, it just, it's getting confused almost, right? So you're trying to tune in, tune yeah. out, tune in. Make sense of yeah. the situation, absolutely. Yep. And obviously when you're anxious, your, your brain is kind of fried for want of a better description. And so it's hard, it's trying hard to make sense of what's going on for yeah. you. Yeah, that's cool stuff. It's cool stuff. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the big event that happened this week. Lawrence looking at me confused. <laughs> This is from your Twitter feed. Yeah. Look, folks, if you haven't been watching, you know, back in the 70s, we were launching rockets to the moon and human beings were walking on the moon. And some of you may remember, actually, we had the last human being to walk on the moon on this show, Captain Gene Cernan, not long before he unfortunately died just a few years back. And so this week, we kind of, the way I think we kind of got back on the horse. So we actually launched the first rocket that will be capable of landing humans on the moon again earlier this week and and there's been a lot of sort of controversy around this because there's been several previous attempts to do this and nasa you know with a limited budget of course whenever there's and i feel for him on this when they say there's a hydrogen leak <laughs> like mm-hmm. i think yeah you might not want to take off at that point no, in time so so not. you know they 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 had to stop and then there was a second time where you know there was a hurricane coming by you know so oh, goodness, I, yep, man. yeah get it back on that you know Drive, drive back into the shed. Yeah. You know, hide. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big, it's a hundred foot tall rocket. You know, more actually, you know, three hundred foot tall rocket. Wow. You know, like a hurricane. Co- nah, yeah, park that in the shed for a few days while the hurricane. That makes goes me by. feel better about being stuck on the tarmac in a Qantas plane. Yeah, yeah. Or something like exactly. <laughs> and so, but this time around, this week, everything seemed to be a go. There was there was a, a bit of a fault right before the launch, as they you know as they fill the rocket with fuel, because one of the things that we forget is that this fuel is at very very low temperature. Mm. So you imagine you know at hundreds of degrees below um, zero this fuel goes in and the whole rocket starts changing shape and so forth as a result and that's why you get these leaks Mm. because all of a sudden you go from what was probably room temperature to chilling it down very rapidly Mm. and so there was a there was a couple of very small um, problems and they had this this group of engineers called the red team and i think they've become quite famous actually but there's this this group of 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 engineers and they have to go out onto the gantry and you know i'm not sure what they exactly did out there but it's you know i'm just thinking of some cellies sealant or something and off off you go you know some gum (laughs) but you know they did their job and they, they got the hell out of there and then they launched the rocket but one of the things that i wanted to so, and, and to give you an idea of where it is now, it is, you know, streaming towards the moon. It's about three quarters of the way there. It's already taken some amazing photos. So if you go to nasa.gov, you can look at some of the photos. It's, it's taken, you know, these distant, I mean, we used to just call them photographs, but they're now called selfies of the craft. <laughs> um, but in the background, of course, is Earth. Yeah. And, you know, so if you think about that, it's a photograph of every single living human being right now, which yeah. is kind of cool. Wow. Um, and in fact, it replaces the only other photograph um, like that um, that was taken, like in a similar sense, there's a photograph of Earth that's only missing one human being. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this photograph, but the photograph was taken by the third person in the Apollo 11 um, craft, which was Michael Collins. And so when he took that photograph, of course, there was the moon and the Earth in the shot. So the Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were on the moon. Everyone else was on Earth. He was the only human being not in the photograph, which is kind of cool. That's yeah. very cool. Anyway, so Orion's, uh, Orion, which is the, the, the sort of pod that sits on top of the, the Artemis um, system, is what will eventually you know, um, get us to the moon and then return to Earth. So it's going to be in Earth, a moon orbit very soon, going to get some amazing photographs. But the bit that I thought you guys would find really interesting, this is something you don't hear about, and I'm assuming neither of you watched the launch. But for those who did watch the launch, you would have noticed when you were watching the bottom of the rocket where all the flames come out, all of a sudden there was like this tidal wave of water that was just dumped at the bottom of the rocket, mm. right? And you think, why is there all this, this water? What's mm. going on? Yeah. You know? yeah. Did a wave come in? <laughs> you know, like, but actually there's, there's 1.7 million litres of water that is dumped very rapidly. And can you guess why that might be? Is it to cool it down? No, no, okay. no, but it's a good. That's a good thought. It's a good changing thought. the shape of it or something. Or? No, it's 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 an amazing thing. It's because 
what you want to do at that point is diffuse some of the sound oh. from the rocket because it is so loud yeah. that it can actually bounce back and damage itself. Oh, gee. So you can hear this thing like, you know, 10 kilometers away. Yeah. And it is so loud that the water is used to actually dissipate some of the sound. So wow. if, you, if you go on and you watch the rocket launch, which is on the NASA.gov website, you'll see there's this kind of avalanche of water. It's like, where's this water coming from, right? I was expecting the flames, but yeah. I wasn't expecting the water. But it's all dropped in at the base of the rocket to try and diffuse some of the sound because that sound can actually be damaging to the launch wow. and, and the rocket itself. You think about that, like it's so loud that, that um, you have to do something about it. So yeah. anyway, I thought the uh, I thought the water thing is kind of a cool story that people don't think about, people don't know about. But, um, <laughs> no, that's very cool. You don't really expect it. You think, is it going to put it out? Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, I wonder if people thought it was a mistake or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, they're trying to put it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Another <laughs> false launch. False launch, get the water in there. <laughs> yeah, that's it, but that's uh, it. anyway, no, it's to, to dissipate the sound and try and keep it nice and quiet. So That is very cool. Anyway, it's cool stuff. Um, you know, the launch was spectacular. Can't tell you how many times I've watched it. It's disturbing. <laughs> it's wasted a lot of time for me this week. But uh, you know, Rocket if you come on Einstein and Go Go, you're going to hear about this stuff, Gemma. I can't. I can't wait, Dr. Shane. Uh, <laughs> I haven't had my dose of Rocket uh, Rocket news. So this year, no, <laughs> or, or in my life. In your life, that's it, yeah. That's it. You'll catch up soon. <laughs> well, folks, we're going to take a short break for some music, and when we come back, we'll be speaking with Professor Felice Jacker about all sorts of things, including NASA. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is the Alfred Deacon Professor Felice Jacker. Welcome. You've been to Triple R so many times. I'm going to say welcome back. Thank you, Shane. Thanks, everyone. It's good to have you. Now, you, you got your Order of Australia uh, last year, didn't you? I did, I know. And that was really unexpected. And, you know, I <laughs> somebody rang me from, um, you know, they said they're uh, somebody from Government House. And I thought, oh, this is a prank for sure. And I just started <laughs> laughing and said, why are you calling me? And they said, well, somebody, you know, they're very serious. Someone's <laughs> nominated you for a special award. And I said, really? What did I do? <laughs> so it was really exciting. And I still have no idea who nominated me and it's quite a procedure to do that a lot of mm. work so I'm really grateful to them because you know it helps to give me a platform and absolutely that's what yeah science is all about really isn't yeah, it yeah. it's changing stuff yeah and because I got one the year before you were you able to go because with me I got mine from the Australia Post guy <laughs> which was <laughs> which was <laughs> yeah eventually they did the conferring ceremony but, but like originally it was like you know this guy turns up on the bike yeah mate you gotta sign for this and I'm like <laughs> Okay. You have a, a Cockney <laughs> <Yeah>. post office. <laughs> what? Yeah. Did you get to go? To, I did, yeah. and it was really exciting. And yeah. it was a beautiful day, and you know the gardens are oh, glorious. gorgeous, there. and Lovely. they didn't quite have the cucumber sandwiches, which is good because I really hate cucumber. But they did have cups of tea, and it was yeah. very Lovely. nice. Yeah, no, it's nice. You go in there. I think the the thing if, if anyone's been there, like there's the staff are like trained to within an inch of their life I think and there's so everything's so ordered and everything's yeah. just so and you yes. do things and there's this great order. big room with I think green carpet from memory and it's a great big long table and everything's leather and very very fancy oh, so it was I'm not sure if I got fun. into the leather room that might have been something they just did for you um, <laughs> very good though very good that you you got that it is, it is a great it's a great sort of accolade to get now as I say as you go up the order of Australia rankings you know the the lower ones for me are more meaningful you know the, the the OAMs, which a lot are given out, are often for people who you know, spend their whole lives doing stuff that's you know really quite meaningful to a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, it meant a lot to me. I was really pleased, and I said thanks, Queenie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I said that. Um, (laughs) Very good. Now, uh, the Food and Mood Centre. I want to talk a lot about that. But first of all, you know, nutrition and psychiatry. I mean, this is your field of which, you know, there are not a lot of people in Australia in this field. How did you sort of get into this? I mean, did you wake up one day when you're, you know, 15 and say, I want to get into the psychiatry and nutrition field? or (laughs) Quite the opposite. I had a really... um Oh, non-linear trajectory. Um, I had a, a rather misspent youth and went to many different schools and got expelled and I didn't even do VCE. I did, you know, fine art instead and my first degree was in fine art and I left home at 16. I mean, I was a mess, basically. Hmm. <laughs> and, I, you know, I always wanted to be an artist so I never thought for a second that I should study anything useful like maths or biology or chemistry right. or anything like that. Um, but because of my own experience with, you know, quite severe major depressive disorder 
disorder and anxiety disorders during adolescence, which is, you know, it's very common. Mm. Um, I was always kind of interested in psychology and understanding why and how. And so when I was in my 30s, I went back to uni to study psychology. And as I was doing it, I was thinking, oh, I don't think I could be a counsellor, but I really like this stats business. And I'm interested in the biological aspects to this, although we didn't do a lot of it in our psychology course. Um, So when I finished doing that, I thought, oh, gee, I'd like to get my hands on some real data. So I put my hand up to do a bit of um, work experience with a newly established psychiatric research unit in Geelong because I was living down the coast by that stage. And they said, look, we've got these data, we've got no money to to collate Mm. them, analyse them, write them up. Would you like to do it? And I said, yes, please, and burst into tears because I was so excited. Um, So I came into psychiatry research very unexpectedly and with no idea at all that there were even such a thing as psychiatry research. To my mind, medical research was things that involved lab, lab coats and microscopes and things like that. And so I was really fascinated when I came into psychiatry research to realise that there was pretty much nothing on on the link between nutrition and mental and brain health. Mm. And I thought that was really odd, given that we've understood for a long time, decades, that um, what we eat every day is intrinsically linked to our risk for chronic diseases. And there was this new understanding that our immune system was really very closely linked to mental and brain health in this bidirectional manner this whole new field of psychoneuroimmunology. And, of course, what we eat really influences our immune health. And at the same time, there was a a new field that was looking a lot at um, what we call brain plasticity. But it was basically based on this new recognition that there's this key part of the brain called the hippocampus that's very plastic. Unlike the rest of our brain, it actually grows new neurons throughout Mm. life Mm. and that it could be very profoundly influenced by, by diet as well as exercise. So to me, there were a couple of very good reasons why we should be thinking about this. But because psychiatry as a paradigm had sort of been for a long time um, thinking about things like mind and body is very separate and um, very focused on the brain and neurons and neurotransmitters and these sorts of things and not really thinking about the whole system of the the human body. How is it that that was the baseline? Because even just the simple sort of the very simplest stuff, my, my body needs food. My body tells my brain I should go and get some. Yeah. Like, I mean, the, the simplest link, right, yeah. is just staring us in the face. I mean, it seems yeah. it, it does seem crazy like, in, in yeah. retrospect, doesn't yeah. and, it? And, and, and when I'm time. sick, you know, when I'm sick, oh, I don't feel like eating. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not yeah, like, but, but my gut's not doing anything weird there. Like, my brain is saying I don't want to eat when I'm sick. Like, yeah. the, these things are I know. inherently it, it, connected. It's, it's very odd in retrospect. And at the time, I thought it was really strange too. But there was a couple of good reasons. One is, of course, that, you know, there was a very pharmaceutical focus in psychiatry mm. that was very focused on the brain and brain cells and, okay. you yeah. know, how pharmaceuticals interacted uh, with these, these factors. But the second two was, I think, very important was this idea that food and your mental health could be linked had a terrible reputation largely due to this um, this orthomolecular medicine I don't know if you've ever heard of it but it's very big no. in the US and it's basically was put forward by a particular person who was convinced that lack of particular nutrients, nutrient deficiencies was the cause of a whole lot of very serious psychiatric disorders and that you could fix very serious psychiatric disorders by taking nutritional supplements now of course complete right. evidence free zone, there was yeah. not a single peer-reviewed publication or anything and there was also there was a few there were a few good um epidemiological studies that had tried to sort of look at individual components of food and how Mm. they might be related to mental health but there was a lot of very poor quality science as well like open label trials of supplements and i mean supplements and food are completely different they are not they shouldn't even be in the same conversation even though they are of interest potentially in and of themselves Well, there's there's so much money behind the supplement industry too i mean what what the supplement industry in my understanding i mean you and Jim are the experts here try to tell you is that you are deficient that's so correct. they market you are deficient, therefore, rather than yeah. why don't you go and get a blood test? If you are deficient, yeah. then you should take a supplement. Well, that's right, and you even know, like, that's and it's, not but they don't want that straightforward. To, even that's not straightforward, but yeah. but they don't want you to do that because if you did, you you know your GP would probably say, you know what, you're fine. 
Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't, don't go and spend all this money. And in money. fact, there's a couple of interesting trials recently that have suggested that multivitamin mineral supplements, people actually do worse than placebo. I mean, the idea that wow. you can't do any harm with these things is, yeah. of course, rubbish. Yeah, um, exactly. So the field, this idea that nutrition and food might be linked to mental and brain health had really been tarnished and mm. put into the complementary, alternative, right. yeah, functional, yeah. you know, yep. all those things that were pejorative, really. Um, and so nobody really thought about it seriously. But because I came in completely fresh with absolutely no knowledge of anything mm. like this, I think that was a strength because it allowed yeah, yeah. me to think about it a little no bit bias. differently. Yeah. And I'd always been very interested in food and how it, it is fundamentally you know, running every process in our body, but also the wider context of food, you know, the environmental aspects of it, the ethical aspects of it, just food as a, you know, and also just the eating of it, which is obviously really fantastic yeah. fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I set out to actually look at this. And when I proposed it as a PhD, um, there was a lot of sort of like... Mm. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. All right, well, okay, off you go. <laughs> but, you know, my, my beautiful, wonderful supervisor who I've worked with for more than 20 years now, he's a psychiatrist. He doesn't know anything about epidemiology or mm. about um, nutrition, but he was very, very supportive. And he basically said, yep, off you go. So I had to kind of just make it up and take a lot of the methods from nutritional epidemiology, new, new statistical methods. Yeah. And apply them and sort of just figure it out as I went along. But I ended up, um, my PhD paper was published then on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry. And Medscape Psychiatry said it was the most important study of the, you know, 2010 psychiatry research, which I think now is kind of cute that an observational cross-sectional study could have had that impact. But it was simply that it was new. It just hadn't been looked at before. And it's it's funny to me because when I hear about some of this stuff, I think back to, you know, some of the things I've said over the last decade of of fields that I see exploding. You know, one is immunotherapy for cancer, which I think is just so this idea of, you know, when we think about the fact that we get cancer. In, in a sense, because our immune system stops getting rid of all the cancer in our bodies and, and has a flaw at that point, you know, because we get cancer all the time, yeah. but our immune system just takes care of it. You know, it's part of our yeah. makeup. But then at some point, that stops working. And so, you know, that has exploded. Immunotherapy has exploded. But the other one is that, you know, I think we're still calling it the gut-brain axis. I don't know if that term is still being used, but, but that idea that we have so many neurons in our in our sort of digestive mm. system that are somehow communicating with But what's brain. really cool, Shane, is that those two things are intricately linked. Yeah, yeah. So um, it, we call it the microbiota gut-brain axis. Right. Because the gut-brain <laughs> axis... I can update. We've known about that for <laughs> yeah. a long time yeah. because, you know, you've got the vagus yeah. nerve and you've got this very tight link. About 10% of the signals go from the brain to the gut, about 90% from the gut to the brain. Right. It's pretty much its own system yep. in and of itself, yep. highly complex. But it's only more recently that we've understood that the, the micro the, mm. that live in the gut as well as you know in our mouth and everywhere else are very important players in this and then of course they're highly modifiable and mm. what is one of the the key ways in which you can quickly modify um, possibly the composition but certainly the function of your gut bacteria yeah. is to modify your diet but people who are having immunotherapy and this is where I think the whole area... So the, the microbiota gut-brain axis research is still, I would say, in its earlier stages in that a lot of the studies are coming from animal, you know, a right. lot of yep. animal research. In cancer, we're getting really good data from humans, big groups of humans, and showing that the diversity of our gut microbiota, which is commonly seen as um, a one marker, if you like, of gut health and resilience is very clearly linked to outcomes mm. in people who have immunotherapy. Um, those who have a more diverse gut microbiota have much better outcomes. And in fact, they're now doing poo transplants yeah. from people who have responded to immunotherapy into those who haven't for that reason. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. I mean, I asked uh, this question a few weeks back from one of our other guests, but should I um, for at least be freezing some of my good 51-year-old poo for a later yeah. date? Yeah, yeah. I think that that is definitely a future. Because um, I can clear some space in the fridge. I think that there's a, a lot of discussion about that because so we've just finished a pilot trial of FMT, so fecal microbial transplant for major depressive disorder. Wow. And it was a feasibility trial. It yep. was really seeing whether people would sign up to do it. And not only yep. did they sign up, we had this massive waiting list. I mean, there's just such an unmet demand for new treatments for people with depression because there's so many people who just don't respond to existing treatments or they don't fully respond. 
Would they be happy to come in four days in a row to get enemas of somebody else's poo? Yep, they were. Wow. Yeah. Um, were there any adverse events? No, there wasn't. But I know that people who are very uh, interested in this area and looking carefully are saying that we think that the future will be that you will biobank your, your stool from when mm. you're younger and healthier and then you have it there for later in the future if you need that yeah. so that it, it's sort of less risk because it's I coming from you. and my blood. Mm. I want to biobank my blood yes. so it's got all my younger markers. Yes. So when I'm 80, you're going to pump this stuff into me. I'll swallow the poo tablets that Felicia's uh, yeah, yeah. You know, sorted out for me and I'll be 40 again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, it, it, is it going to work? It's just such fascinating stuff. Yeah. But I always say, you know, this new area of research focused on the bacteria and the viruses and fungi and everything else that we co-evolve with. I mean, mm. we're symbionts. We can't live yeah, without yeah, yeah. that. Yep. They can't live without us. It's so complex. I mean, just the, the computational power that's needed to start to understand this, the way the bacteria interact with each other, with mm. our human body systems, all of this so complicated. But what you need to do to have a healthy gut microbiota is actually really simple based on what we know right. so far. Now, there's going to be some areas where we might tweak things. There might be slight variations for different people. But in the main, it's actually really simple because the primary role of our gut bacteria is to break down the aspects of food that our human enzymes can't break down. Right. And that's plant fibre. Right. So lots and lots of plants, but lots of diversity of plants. The mm. more diverse your plant intake, the more diverse your gut bacteria. And that seems to be associated with health. So these are not just, you know... 30 different types of vegetables a day but everything yeah, yeah. that falls into the plant category so vegetables and fruits obviously but all the different whole grains like oats and barley and spelt and rye and blah 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 very importantly legumes you know beans and and chickpeas and lentils mm. and sorts of things herbs and spices i mean herbs are just amazing in the thousands of different compounds they have in them nuts and seeds all of these count as plants and diversity so Lots of plants, lots of diversity of plants. I suggest throwing in a bit of fermented foods. The evidence is still very much developing there. But um, the, in a fermented food product, the bacteria are breaking down the substrates it, just outside of your gut. They're just doing it in a right. bottle. So yep. all of the thousands of different molecules that they produce, you still get still them get, when yeah. you ingest that. Yeah. So that's actually pretty simple. Hmm. So I'm hearing a lot about diversity, um, and I think that that's a really key thing. And one of the things that whenever I take antibiotics, my GP always suggests to take probiotic supplements yeah. as well. Do those supplements, do they actually give you that sort of diversity, or are you just kind of introducing a small section and then you've got to yeah, get back we, on your we, good diet? We don't really know, and yeah. uh, this is the tricky thing. And, I mean, there's so much we don't know. So, for example, those probiotics will often have lactobacillus bacteria and different um, species and even different strains. We don't really have good evidence around what they actually do. But one of the interesting things with lactobacillus, for example, is that it doesn't really stick around. So it's not like it goes in and populates your gut. It pretty much just goes through. But it does something. Yeah. And we don't know how or why. And this is why it's somewhat problematic that we do such a lot in animals because lactobacillus does hang around in, in rodents but not in humans. Mm. So... Um, I think in the absence of knowing any better, I would certainly be taking probiotics when I had antibiotics, and but also I'd be more focused on fermented foods like yeah. kefir and kombucha and things like that. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Loving this interview, Professor Felice. Um, so you talked about a lot of the foods that were good for our uh, gut microbiota. Are there foods that maybe are a bit less good? Yeah, we're still really working that out. And again, there's all there's so many methodological challenges in doing nutrition research, as you can imagine. Um, one of them is that it's very hard to blind studies, so that's a big one. But the second is it's very hard to get ethics to put people on a, an unhealthy food diet or just you know feed them a whole lot of sugar for two weeks and see what happens. It's not that you can't do it, it's just more challenging. So we still have a, a, a lack of understanding really about how the ultra-processed foods interact with our gut microbiota. There are some data from um, rodent studies that suggest, for example, that emulsifiers or artificial sugars, sugars are not great. There's some, I think, a, a study in pigs that suggests that high blood glucose can um, affect the, the lining of the, the gut, which is really important. Uh, 
but we don't have good data from humans as yet. We need to do more of that. So what we have more of are dietary intervention studies that have generally used like a Mediterranean-style dietary approach and showing that that can improve things, but not the opposite because that's a much harder thing to test mm. ethically. Mm, interesting. For this, Jackie, you're happy to hang around for a bit. I've got to play some uh, important sure. station announcements. <laughs> yeah, we're going to take a short break, folks, and we're going to continue this conversation uh, just after this. Triple R. Uh, you are listening to Three Triple R, folks, and in the studio with us for Einstein to go go today is Professor Felice Jacker from Deakin University. Felice, we've we've covered a bit of ground already, but you recently have been hanging around over at NASA. What is going on? I mean, when I saw this, you were tweeting about this, and then you sent me what I consider to be kind of almost pornography photos of NASA equipment. <laughs> I think we, we've got to get you on the show because um, this is exciting. I mean, nutrition for NASA is a huge issue. So, yeah. what what's the go there? I mean, the, I mean, you're you know you've been referred to by by I think. Was it Sandra or, or um, someone as the queen of nutrition in Australia? Um, and obviously they don't have a queen in no, the no. US. Well, uh, others have called me the fairy godmother of nutritional <laughs> psychiatry, which I really <laughs> like. But I also do often say to people, look, my background is not nutrition, it's psychology, but I do work with lots of fantastic mm. nutrition scientists. Yep. And this was really kind of mind-blowing, to be honest. I had a few out-of-body experiences when I was there. So I was, spent two full days in Houston with the team at Trish. So Trish is the Translational Research Institute for Space Health. And so they do the sort of the, the human aspect of the, the space yep. program as opposed to the nuts and bolts rockets side of things. And, of course, the big challenge is how they might get humans to Mars and keep them alive up there because even with the best sort of preservation techniques and everything that they have at the moment, the nutritional value of food is lost after a period Mm. of time. And to try and keep uh, humans alive in an atmosphere that's got no uh, bacteria, for a start, is super, super challenging. So they were kind enough to give up a couple of days to to engage really closely with me. And I had many moments where I'm sitting here thinking... I'm talking to the heads of NASA and they're asking me for ideas about the Mars program. Like, are you serious? But as it turns out, I don't know, there are all these new things and new ways of thinking Mm. about food that I think can be quite useful. And the bacteria is very much part of it. I mean, how do you preserve diversity? How do you preserve gut diversity if you're in space with no form of getting more diversity from the soil or the air or the water or anything? How do you preserve the bacterial um, health, if you like, of, of plants or, you know, ensure that they're there? How can you keep the nutritional value of food there's all sorts of ways in which we might start to think about food very differently by using bacteria as the powerhouse of production of all sorts of different molecules that we're just starting to find out are so critical for our our survival really because it's interesting isn't it i mean when we if we think back and people probably haven't thought about this a lot but when we went to the moon it's about three days there about three days back stayed for a couple of days you know, like yeah. there's, you know, you can you can live off Mars bars for that long. Exactly. Yeah, you like that? Um, <laughs> but, you know, you can live off that stuff. It, it's not a huge issue. And even then, actually, when the astronauts came back, and when they come back from the International Space Station after months, they're not in great shape when no. they first step off that helicopter onto the aircraft carrier. You know, they often mm-hmm. have to be helped, actually, because their muscle mass, all sorts of things are mm-hmm. changing. But a trip to Mars is a totally different ballgame. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, you know, in excess of a year to get there, depending on the exact position of Mars. But, you know, yeah. talking about a very long period of time. But then to stay, yeah. as you say, I mean, you read The Martian? I hope you have. Oh, gosh, yeah. I yeah, love Yeah, because you book. have to, you know, like, because, you know. <laughs> and that film. Because <laughs> especially when NASA are talking to you, yeah, well, you know, we could bury our own turds and yeah. grow some potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but that, it, what, what was fascinating when I was there, because I was so lucky. I mean, I got these VIP tours of yeah, you yeah. Know, so many aspects of the space station and the space program, and I spoke to so many people who were yeah, trying we to work out We don't out need these to hear about any of that. Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry, Sean. <laughs> I was thinking of you the whole time. Um, He's going to hate this. Yeah, it's amazing how often they refer to things like 
Star Trek and The Expanse oh, and yeah. Martian and everything. And, of course, I do too because yeah. I love all those So things. you're in the nerd – you're in the centre oh, of the nerd the, capital. Absolutely yeah. in the nerd zone. It was the best fun. <laughs> um, but they really are trying to figure out how they can um, – and they have particular phrases. And I think it was like feedstock, I think, which is the materials that you might need to get up there to be able to use 3D printers mm, once they're on yep, Mars. Yep. And how, for example – we were talking about how they can – make the food packaging the same material that they'll need to then feed into the 3D printers. And just all those practical things about, you know, they've got so little space, uh, so to speak, (laughs) to to get stuff up there. And so how can everything be repurposed and recycled? In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how can you get bacteria there? How can you get... And there are many things that we can do in that space. But on the other human psychology side of things... Mm. You're talking about having a very small group of people locked up in a very small, very intense situation for a long period of time. Mental health is a huge issue. Yeah. Lauren and I, we struggled just being in the studio for an hour together. (laughs) That's a few minutes in. Once a month, but it's tough. Well, there's two things. One is... Can we improve general diet to improve mental health and, and yep. mental resilience, which is sort of what the, the research, and including the research we've led, has started to show. So, for example, with our very famous SMILES trial, um, that was the first randomised control trial to show that if you took people who had moderate to even very severe clinical depression and you helped them to improve their diet with a you know Mediterranean-style diet, which we know is a very healthful food uh, way of eating, could you improve their mental health? Well, the answer was yes. We saw a dramatic improvement, and there's been three more trials since then that have shown the same thing. Also highly cost-effective. Also, mm. um, Is this where you actually prepare the food for them? And no, no, so no. Because no. to me, whenever I hear that, I think, okay, so was it the support they were getting that was affecting their mental health, yeah. or was it the actual food, and can you separate them? Great, great question. So what we have to do is to have a comparison group that has equivalent amount of face-to-face interaction with someone right. to control for that dietitian. Okay. So they basically, in the SMILES trial, they were randomly assigned to see either a clinical dietitian for three months or um, someone to provide what's called social support. There's a particular okay. befriending protocol that's often used as a control in psychotherapy trials. Okay. And those in the dietary support group, they just got support to gradually um, improve uh, aspects of their diet, eat more plants, fish, olive oil, those sorts of things, but very importantly also reduce their intake of junk and processed foods. So this wasn't any sort of magic diet or anything. You don't have to be vegan or even vegetarian, blah, blah, blah. And then we saw that there was this very profound gain in those who got the dietary support that tied very closely to the degree to which they changed their diet. And in fact, we've just done a new analysis of the of the SMILES data and showed that it seemed to be particularly potent the more people reduced their junk and processed food intake, that that seemed to result in even more gain than, say, for example, what well, we didn't compare it directly. But the, the question is, is it improving the good stuff or reducing the bad stuff? Right. We think it's both, but we did see a particular gain from reducing yep. the bad stuff. Yep. Well, I think one of the things that I often see with people that are going into quite, you know, serious depression stages is that they, they kind of crave those, you know, processed, oh, sure. you know, they, yeah, mm. they just lock me away with chocolate and a tub of ice cream. So is that a real struggle to actually implement this in the real world, to get past that? Yeah, that, that, that's very true. And, of course, these foods have millions of dollars put into them to make sure that they do interact with all those reward systems in the brain, the same mm. as wine and cigarettes and drugs, etc. does. So that makes them particularly difficult to avoid when you need to make yourself feel better because mm. people will go to that. Um, the second app aspect of this of course is the food environment which is incredibly toxic so our our industrialized food system is now really the leading cause of um, global illness and early death and it also is uh, very destructive for the environment and the latest modeling from the world economic forum puts the cost at nearly 20 trillion dollars a year whoa that's like 16 trillion i think is the gdp of china so this is massive and what 11 trillion of that is the cost to human health yep. and the rest is the cost to the environment. So we really need completely new ways of, of yeah. doing food and this is one of the things we're very interested in. But teasing out that reverse causality thing too because we know that, of course, when people are, are feeling really bad that they do um, reach for the comfort foods 
Um, but the you know the, so you have to design your studies to look prospectively mm. and taking all that into account. But the third thing I think, and this is so key, there's always been this sort of clinical nihilism I think in psychiatry that people won't change their diet. We know that in the general public, it's you know we've been saying for decades we being public health people, you know eat more healthy, don't do this, don't do that. But the focus has been on body weight right. and body size, yeah. and that's just such a silly thing to focus on because it's such a difficult thing to change. Mm. It's very genetically determined. We live in an environment where we have you know unlimited access to food. There's stigma associated, shame. People really struggle. I don't know those of you who might have seen the the show with Magda for yeah, the last yeah, three weeks, yeah. and I was in the last. We had Sandra on this show just a couple of months back. Yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, and she talks about that. Like you just you, there's a shame, and it's not just a matter of willpower. So focusing mm. on body weight doesn't prompt behaviour change. It's yep, that simple. Yeah. Yep. Whereas if you tell people that your mental and brain health, you will start feeling better based on the current evidence within as little as three weeks or even sooner it's fast if you change your diet that prompts behavior change it's very concrete for people it's very immediate they get it and they start to feel the benefits so quickly that it really can make means that they're more likely to continue so, so when we talk about mood and so forth i mean this is interesting with regards to your the, the work with nasa because obviously you want to stay clear of some of those very fabricated foods you know huge amounts of preservatives and so forth but there's there's going to have to be some preservative elements oh, you yeah. know going out there so i mean yeah. that sounds like a big risk to them you know like i've been yeah. eating this preserved stuff with you know for nine months lauren I can't handle you anymore. Out the airlock. <laughs> I'm done with you. Like, that must be a big part of, you know, how do you, like, how do you, you, yeah. you might be able to do stuff once you get to Mars or, you know, but, but en route, you know, if you're eating very preserved stuff for a yeah, protracted yeah. period, that's got to oh, be problematic. Look, and, right? and this goes back to, to, you know, and I've only really just started my thinking around this and the work that we might do with NASA, but they're very keen for us to partner with them to do some studies down in Antarctica yeah, because right. that is the best yeah. analogue for astronauts. You know, yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, <laughs> Freezing cold, yeah. inhospitable. Yeah, they can't get out. It's trying to kill you. A, a, yeah. a small group of people over yeah. a long period of time. And this is particularly the Australian groups. They've got four research right. stations and they winter yeah. there. So nine months stuck with the same people. Yeah. So they listen to this show, by the way, so just be careful. Okay, yeah. Don't yeah, say so anything mean. No, no, I won't say anything yeah. mean. Make sure you've I, seen I the film The Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the first part of this program might be saying, okay, can we tweak the normal diet that they would be given down yep. there to improve or optimise right. resilience and mental well-being? Because they the, just eat fish and non-stop. <laughs> penguins. <laughs> they do not eat penguins, Felice Jacker. They do Yuck. not eat penguins. <laughs> But the next stages might be looking at these, what I call future foods. You know, so far industrialised foods are absolutely a disaster. They've got almost no nutritional value and they're full of things that are really, really bad for you. But future foods will be far more clever than that. Yeah. They'll have these fermentation products. They'll have potentially actually bacteria. They will have... Um, have identified those key compounds in the thousands, if not more, molecules that are in plant foods, and they will have isolated and put those together. And let's start to think about how we might develop future foods that could, A, help keep people alive mm. on Mars, but B, then inform the rest of the population because we got to, we've got to feed the planet. We've yep. got to feed this huge and growing population yeah, billion, in yeah. a way that doesn't destroy health and the environment, which yeah. is currently what it is. And this is something I'm very, very interested in. Yeah. So the future of food science and food tech and future food is something that now I'm very interested in as an Aquarian, Shane. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> astrology is important. We, we say that all the time in this show. On that note, I'm going to take a short break for some station announcements so people can Chew on that and the idea that you're suggesting people eat penguins. Triple R. Yeah, we just a few minutes left on Einstein and Gago. Gemma from Radiotherapy, handing over to you for a question. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Shane. And yes, I'm love. I'm still loving this interview, Professor Felice. I had a question. So um, you showed the positive impacts in depression initially. What other mental health conditions are you thinking about in terms of investigation for your future work? Oh, it's such a great question, and obviously. Um Depression is the, the most common of the common mental disorders and the most burdensome, but there are other disorders where we think that there's the possibility that particular dietary strategies might be effective, and one of them is um, bipolar disorder. Now, the ketogenic diet has had a lot of press that is 
are often not evidence-based thus far. Uh, if you do it poorly, you can really run into s- yeah. health issues. So it's certainly not something we advocate for the general population. But in bipolar disorder, where you get this mitochondrial dysfunction, we think that's really part of the, the issue with bipolar, this energy generation dysfunction. We think that a ketogenic diet might have utility, and this is something that we really, really want to test. But there might also be different dietary strategies that are even more efficacious than the Mediterranean diet. There might be things like lots and lots of fermented foods or lots, even more polyphenols, etc. So there's a lot mm. to do. Getting funding is really hard. We um, are targeting, you know, we hope philanthropy will step in. They've done quite a bit so far. But uh, the, the future, you know, is, I think, very positive. Mm. Now, before we let you go, Felice, we only have a minute or so to go, but there's a lot here in mental health. What about if I just want to get smarter? Is there something I can do eating-wise to help me out? Because I know I'm, yeah. I, I'm, I'm in a declining phase of my life, I feel. Oh, for sure. Like we, um, so I led the first study to show in humans what we see in animals, which is that if you have a healthier diet, um, you have a, a larger hippocampus, and right. your hippocampus yeah. shrinks as so, you get that older. Good. Yeah. yeah, so it's a seat of learning and memory as well as mental health. So eating well and not drinking too much alcohol, unfortunately, um, is very important for a good, healthy hippocampus but there have been a couple of studies where they've done a western style diet a junk food diet for as little as a week showing really obvious impacts on cognition and ability increases no decreases (laughs) (laughs) just to clarify for everyone listening so even just like a week of junk food can impair your ability to think by by from what we know so, so far. So keep, uh, keep it nice and healthy and lots of greens. Yeah, lots of greens. Lots of all the good stuff. And it doesn't have to be a restrictive diet. Yeah. Well, Professor Felice Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, thanks for sending me all those NASA pictures. Really enjoyed getting those. Oh, and, uh, it's a it great was like, pleasure. Wish thanks you were here sort of comments. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> a bit mean. Look, good luck with all the work, though, because you, you've got an amazing centre down there at Deakin with a lot of amazing people. And I think um, it is definitely one of the sort of highest flying centres in its space in the world and very much look forward to hearing what's happening with NASA in the future. So thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much. Um, Gemma, it's been good having you on the show here. What's it like being part of Einstein and Gago after so many years of uh, radiotherapy? Truly sort of unforgettable, inspiring? Dr. Shane. I, I hope I can come back one day. <laughs> I'll need some time to recover, but uh, I hope you yeah. might have me back. Oh, we'll have you back. I'm sure we Thank can. you. What do you think, Lawrence? Yeah, we're, we're not letting it go, are we? I thought that was <laughs> like every they're show. Lo- they're locking the doors here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can get you back. And uh, Dr. Lauren, good to see you. What have you uh, got planned for the rest of the day? Well, Anything I was just big? thinking I'm going to make sure I have a very, very healthy lunch after all. <laughs> that discussion that's my main thing <laughs> lots of fermented goodness yeah and your eye research going well very well yeah very very well yep. no, we've got um, a few more international clinical trials coming into australia which is very exciting for people that have these eye diseases yeah, so. neuro- neurodegeneration of the retina have i got that right that's right that's right yep. exactly we can see it with photos now people so oh, go wow. get your eyes tested yeah i still you know i still got that plan for every cardiac ward in the country should have a ophthalmologist sitting there taking data collecting data because mm. it's the only part of the body where you can directly see the vascular system yep. Yep. which it's i think amazing. is amazing that we don't do anything about it yep. Yep. um it's amazing. cool stuff anyway i'll keep pushing that you know yep. um, anyway. you find us some funding folks uh, thanks so much for li- <laughs> find some money yeah uh thanks so much for listening to einstein go go today i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere and in a few moments we'll be handing over to the great team from eat it uh, cam's got an amazing uh, show today so uh make sure you're listening hi this is dr shane Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.